Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Witherley. Dr. Stephen Witherley has written a book called Why Humans Like Junk Food. The book was written over 15 years ago and should have changed the food industry for good. I think, just like Malcolm Kendrick, he's been silenced. I think you're going to learn a lot. You're going to love today's podcast. And I think you may just change your relationship with food for good. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, your book, Why Humans Like Junk Food, is one of the best books I've ever read. Some things in there frighten me half to death, but lots of the things in here explain completely why I was obese for so many years. Uh, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Now, um, do you mind if I pick your brains about some of the topics in here and maybe maybe expand a little bit? Um, sure. Like I said, the book is called um, Why Humans Like Junk Food. In fact, before we get there, why don't you tell everybody uh, this side of the pond a little bit about your background, your story? Look, my background is I have a PhD in human nutrition. I have a master's in food science and I have a BS in dietetics. And in 1984, my professor, Rosemary Pangborn, asked me, with your background and what we know about sensory evaluation of food, is there any way you can tie nutrition into what we'd like to eat? That was 1984. And so I decided nutrition and what we'd like to eat. Nutrition, the human being likes about 50 different nutrients. And so I'm trying to figure out how do I tie in sugars, fat, salt, protein, calcium, zinc to what we like to eat. And so I decided to go with the most important food item that people like to eat in the United States, and that would be the Doritos chip, the snack food that right now I believe is about $8 billion in sales around the world. I figured if I could figure out what was in the Doritos that made it worth $8 billion, then I could figure out perhaps why people eat other things like popcorn, ice cream, things like that. So that's what got me started. That was 1984, and I haven't stopped since. Uh, and recently, in the last 10 years, some of the information that we're getting now on, the, on sensory evaluation, physiology, your brain, it's been astounding, and I do have to admit, as we discuss it a little later on, it's a bit depressing. You think you control your food intake? Not so much. Back yeah. to you. Yeah, absolutely. We think we're in control. We think it's all rational thoughts at the front of our brain, but pretty much a lot of it is automated and, and controlled very much by those big food companies. Um, We'll come back to the Dorito chips a little bit later and, and some of the other foods. 
maybe you can educate us a little bit about why the brain seeks out salt, sugar, and fat mixes, and, and, and why they're, well, that's, that will then explain why they put it into so many fast foods. Yeah, well, let's, let, let's start with that one, salt, fat, and sugar. Uh, let's start with a salt. Uh, I looked at what's unique about humans, and I noticed something, that we don't have any fur, and we don't have any way to store salt. So that salt is a continuing, everyday, uh, it's a drive. Even if you have plenty of salt, your body goes, I can't store it, I can't put it anywhere. And every day, well, uh, I'll tell you what about storing salt. Go out, run 26 miles, and see what happens at mile 26 when you have no more sodium chloride. So what happens is we are, humans are salt animals, plants are potassium animals. And so because we need salt and we can't store it, we have a high salt appetite, sometimes two to three grams a day. Now, sugar. The brain runs 100% on sugar, and your nervous system likes to run on sugar would be glucose or dextrose. So we're always looking for sugar, and I and we can store only about two to 400 grams of sugar. That's it. Two to 400 grams. That's about, uh, oh, about 20 miles into the, into the marathon race. Your salt runs out at mile 24. So the Greeks are pretty smart when they figured this out. When you run a marathon, uh, it is truly at mile 26, you have nothing left. And then fat. Now, here's a depressing point, uh, perhaps for your listeners. Humans have the ability to store more fat than even a penguin. Those penguins you see sitting on eggs in, in, in Antarctica uh, are running on ketones from burned fat. So humans have an unbelievable ability to uh, store body fat, sometimes way in excess of, of, of muscle and bone. So sugar, salt, and fat, just like the book by uh, uh, that, that famous journalist, Michael uh, Moss, is, is true. Those are the three ingredients that make humans humans because we have no fur, we have the greatest ability to store fat, and we can only store about 400 grams of glucose. So we're always looking for the big three, salt, sugar, and fat. Now, we're always looking for the big three. But my understanding is that in nature, it, they rarely come along all at once, with the exception of maybe milk, nuts, and seeds. That you know, If something we ate once had a face on it, an animal or a fish, uh, it tends to be just fat and protein. And if it didn't have a face on it, uh, it's more come from plants, uh, 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 and they're from plants. It's really carbohydrates um, and protein. But rarely do you get a lot of fat and a lot of sugar together. In loads of experiments with mice, when they do that, the mice just get fatter and fatter and fatter. Uh, and the combination of two does make us put on weight. And it seems to be, while we don't see a lot in nature, we're seeing that combination time and time again in fast foods and packaged foods. Yes, you are 100% correct. In, in nature, you don't see that combination at all. It's a rarity. And I did some research with, uh, with uh, obese rats. And I do remember one day, the, the obese rats were on the, on the top of the cage. And I accidentally opened the cage. One of them got out. 
and a four foot drop, it hit the ground. We were feeding them Oreo cookies, and you can imagine the splat would happen when the rat hit it. So even rats understood the importance of finding something that's rare in nature. The closest thing we have to sh sugar, fat, and salt would be maybe a nut, but we don't have the big three. That's why when, when humans invented junk food and put all three together, the brain goes, my gosh, we finally have all three in one. I can take this and live on this forever, which is actually you can't. But the big three nutrients that you need, your brain goes, I've got it. Your tongue goes, I've got it. Your liver goes, I got it. Your intestine says, I have it. One of the things that we learned in the book and recently is that we have receptors for sugar, salt, and fat throughout the entire body. So we're always looking for the big three. Fascinating. And of course, the big food companies, that's what they want, isn't it? You know, they want us to get hooked on their products. It's no good selling to somebody once they make their profit when we start to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And if the reward system's there for our body to go, I've got my salt, I've got my fat, I've got my sugar, and we'll come on to a lot more things in a moment, but you know, that must be the root cause of why they keep putting it in so that we keep going back and back and back and sort of satisfying the brain. Well, a human invented emulsions about, say, 100, 200 years ago, and the greatest emulsion ever invented was called ice cream. And that's where I got the whole gist of why humans like junk food is because ice cream uh, was invented early. It's an emulsion. It's a fat and water emulsion. But to make ice cream, it's about <laughs> it's about 50% sugar. <laughs> so that fat and the, the butter fat and the sugar emulsion of ice cream set the whole thing going. And then we invented extrusion. We could make a, a Cheeto or a puff, a, a puff snack. Or and then we learned how to fry, deep fry a crisp, as they say in England, uh, a, a potato chip. So that's what started the whole junk food revolution. Was tech, uh, revolution was technology where we can make emulsions and we can extrude foods. And for example, in our country, uh, Kellogg's invented extrusion where he could take uh, grains and make them into a crispy item that was easy to digest. That's where the revolution came from, was about 100 years ago through technology. Frightening, frightening. So that's emulsion. I, I wanted to, that was one of the questions I wanted to uh, ask about. Tell me a little bit the, on the subject you talk about in your book called dynamic uh, contrast or oreosensory. Yeah, what that is, is we, we, we try to figure out what, why humans want to eat what they want to eat. And my colleague, Dr. Robert Hyde, said he was a, he's a, uh, a brain expert and his PhD in neuroanatomy. And he noticed that when things change in the mouth or the vision, that there's a spike in pleasure in the brain. There's a, there's a spike in, in uh, uh, what we could say, attention. And the more the changes in something, the more spikes in the brain. And he called that dynamic contrast, and he modeled this theory of ice cream. Ice cream is the excellent model. It's cold. It warms up. It's vanilla. It melts down the mouth. It's got salt, fat, and sugar. You leave the salt out of ice cream, and you wouldn't even eat it. You'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah, we, you wouldn't even get close to it. So uh, that, that, that three combinations 
put into an emulsion blend. It's what started the revolution. And the invention of high fructose corn syrup wasn't far behind. And fructose, as you probably know, because you're, you're well learned it, is that fructose helps you gain weight. So that wonderful combination of high fructose, salt, and fat puts on weight very easily. And as far as the brain is concerned, it's, e it's easier to eat ice cream than it is to go out and eat a wild buffalo. Yeah, and that's the sadness of the whole situation. So dynamic contrast is that sort of different textures, different flavors, the crunchy on the outside, the chewy on the inside, the hot, the cold. It's that co dynamic contrast in the mouth. Did it get its name, uh, Oreo Sensory, from the Oreo biscuits that were hard on the outside and soft in the middle? Yes, it did. Uh, we looked at the Oreo cookie, and I asked myself, why were 600 billion sold? And then I looked at the contrast in the Oreo cookie, and if you look at the surface of an Oreo cookie, it's extraordinarily complex. And then you've got the biscuit that is made with a certain type of cocoa that you just don't buy anywhere. And then you've got the salty biscuit, you've got the sweet inner, inner filling, and then you have the, the way it crunches in the mouth, and then it melts down pretty quickly. Now, and then we realized that meltdown was important because meltdown in your mouth means it contacts your taste buds, and that's where a lot of your pleasure it comes from, foods melting down. So then we looked at the Oreo and ice cream, two of the best, and even popcorn, and we realized that foods that melt down the mouth are the ones that people have a tendency to prefer and design and make. Does that mean if I'm trying to get my children to eat more broccoli, which is it doesn't have any Oreo sensory, well, unless I overcook it or undercook it, but if I was to add more salt, if I was to add like melted cheese on top or lots and lots of butter, then you've got mixture of textures. Is that going to improve my chances of, say, getting my children to eat more greens by putting the salt on, making it maybe crunchy in some bits, softer in other bits, some nice sauce over the top? That's exactly what you should do. Uh, in other words, give your body a reason to eat something. For example, all food pleasure is sensation and calories. Now, broccoli doesn't have a lot of calories. So you're eating calories, your body goes, wait a minute, I'm wasting my time eating broccoli. Well, um, maybe you put uh, some, a little butter on it with garlic. Garlic's always a wonder food. Uh, or make it crunchy with a few nuts on top. Give your body a reason to eat it, and you'll be okay. Same thing with a carrot. You cook a carrot, and the sugar, sweetness comes out in the carrot once it's cooked. Raw carrots have really nothing going for it except crunch. So give your body a reason to eat it, and you're on the right path. Uh, in fact, you just touched on my next question, uh, calorie density. I'd never thought about calorie density before in anything other than a negative way. But, of course, you know when, when it's not there in – the good things that you're trying to eat them. It might be full of good nutrition and nutritionally dense, but the body's trained, is it not? Or the brain wants us to eat nutritionally dense food. Could you maybe explain why we're looking for calorie density? Absolutely. That's a very good question. I, I'm really impressed with your knowledge of the book. I have to admit, you're probably one of the best in ever. Nutritional caloric density is the body, I was trying to figure out the density of food, the caloric density, that means calories per gram, uh, what's the body looking for? And then I realized that certain foods that we really like have a certain caloric density. 
So I looked at about uh, two or three hundred junk food, and then I looked at, looked at stuff that we really like, like nuts and even even uh, cooked meat. And I found out that the magic number was zero point five. So that means that the caloric density was like five hundred kilocalories per per thousand grams. And and then a, a physiology friend, a friend of mine explained that our stomach can only digest so much. So the more dense we get, the tougher the digestion, and the less dense we get, the more effort we spend on eating something. So a caloric density of zero would be like water. A caloric density of 100 would, uh, or, or, or 1.0 would be like pure fat. Now, nobody's ever, ever eaten a quart of fat. You drink a quart of fat and you'll get so sick to your stomach you'll throw up. But if you take that fat and you emulsify it, then you can get all the way up to 0.5 without throwing up. And that's the magic number is about 0.5 caloric density. And I guess the, the brain's trying to seek calorie density because back to you know primal days, our, our distant ancestors, you know, it, it didn't know where the next meal was coming from. So given a choice of one or two things, the brain would identify the thing with the most calories, the most energy, and therefore, you know, providing us with the biggest you know, chance to get to the next meal. That's absolutely correct. You're one thing correct. The biggest bang for the buck on storing fat is 0.5. Above that, you get sick to your stomach. Below that, you're kind of wasting your time a little bit because it's the calories kind of aren't there. So the stomach, remember, communicates with the mouth, communicates with the brain, even the liver communicates with the brain. And so it goes, whoa, whoa, that potato chip, 0.5, eat the whole bag. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you very, very much for that. Uh, tell me why uh, salivation response uh, is so important for us to uh, consider when we're looking at food choices. That's a very excellent point, And that I'm emphasizing that in my second book because I didn't quite emphasize it enough. It's now been shown that salivation response to a food is directly proportional to how much you like it. In other words, as you salivate, you like the food. So you have high salivation, like a crunchy food. That means you really like it because humans like crunchy foods. If you have low salivation, it means you like food less. This is a relatively recent phenomenon. And by changing the amounts of foods in your mouth, changing the types of foods, salivation stays high and pleasure stays high. So salivation and pleasure are directly linked. And that is a, one of the great new uh, things I've discovered in the last 10 years. And that's why you know the big food companies, though, especially those big 10 food companies, will do anything they can in their labs and with their teams to work out how do we maximize the salivation uh, in the mouth. And, and I guess us at home cooking, when we're trying to go against those big companies, need to do something similar to, to make sure that we find the food as interesting. Yes, you're 100% correct. The biggest mistake the home cook makes besides serving food that's cold is they don't serve food that causes salivation. The French figured this out in the 17th century by giving by having 800 sauces. Uh, and the British have less sauces, of course, maybe one or two. But salivation is key to the food. And if you don't have salivate, you can have a sauce that 
to help you salivate as you chew the food down. That's why sauces are so very important in French cuisine. Uh, um, I mean, it's just, it's really, they take it to the greatest limit. But at home, the greatest defect I see is I don't see any sauces besides butter and soy sauce. Yeah, it's a really, really, really good point. And I remember for many, many years when I was obese, I didn't have any salt in my kitchen. I thought it was the, the devil. And then I read a book called The Salt Fix by a guy called Dr. James uh, Dimi Calantonio. And he explained that for most people, and there is a very small percent of people, people that are sensitive to salt, but the vast majority of us, there's no such thing as too much salt. And in fact, too little salt can be a bad thing. And here's the thing, isn't it? That in, in, in packaged foods, it's quite a high percent. And then in nature, like vegetables, you know, vegetables on their own don't have salt. So actually, if we want to compete at home with the big food companies and the fact that our, our loved ones or our kids keep going out and buying packaged foods, we've got to reintroduce salt to, to stimulate more saliva. Yeah, that you're, once again, you're 100% correct. Uh, the natural, I gave a talk to dietitians about a year and a half ago, and I said salt is no longer the big bugaboo because the National Academy of Science goes, oh, you know, after 35 years, I guess the salt's okay. Well, you excrete it. And as you said, if you suddenly go on a low-salt diet, 17% of those people, one seven, uh, could induce a heart attack. <laughs> so I think you want to be careful about suddenly dropping your salt intake, which is fine. But we're, we're, we're salt. Salt in human beings goes hand in hand. We have all these sweat glands to get rid of it. So it doesn't bother me. Plus, if you increase your potassium intake, it counteracts the salt nicely, which I've done in experiments. That's brilliant. That's all fantastic advice. Thank you very much. Now, something you Americans have forced on us British, and I'm not having a go, supersize me. Uh, tell me, you wrote a bit, a bit in the book about supersizing and how uh, you know, we think we're in control of our portion sizes, but if you give somebody the big popcorn bucket or the massive big McDonald's, uh, we tend to eat more than we intended to eat. Talk me through supersizing and why it's probably unhealthy for us. Yeah, the supersize me uh, uh, revolution on that started about uh, well, 15, 20 years ago, and it was found by, by uh, a, a biologist named Wilson that sometimes when stimuli are bigger than they should be, our brain goes, whoa, we got something going on here. And so we looked at, at that phenomena, and that was looked by a, a neuroscientist that when we see something that's bigger than our stomach, actually we've heard that expression, and I don't have room for this in my stomach, that you have a tendency to eat more. And if I, off the top of my head, if I remember that one scientist shows well, the brain uses the eyes to look at the food, and the eyes are very good at, at calorie quantification. Very, very good. Over the years, they figured it out. So the, the brain goes, eat more than not less. Eat more of the food that you have in the hand than, than you may not have another meal for another two or three weeks. So there's a tendency then to eat much more, and you eat with your eyes, as they always say. So more calories. And since we can store the more calories, why not eat two or three Big Macs, not just one? So it, it's a phenomenon for survival. Animals have it too. I've even seen my cat overeat when it's given a choice. So it's a survival mechanism. But it's a, what the problem is, there's food everywhere. 
So you don't need food to survive like we did in the old days. Yeah, it's fantastic. So the, the big food companies, which is, you know, we can't live without them anymore, or I suppose we could and we should, but they're there. They're peddling their wares. They're trying to make us eat as much as we can. Uh, and you wrote something in your book, which I've never heard of before, called Sensory Specific Satiety. In other words, if we keep eating the same thing, the same thing, the same thing, the same thing, we get bored of it quite quickly. Uh, and, and, and human nature, this is to do with human nature, because the body knows it needs different nutrients, different vitamins, different minerals, and so on. So uh, back in the bush or back when we were you know, hunter-gatherers, we had to go out and look for a diverse range of food to get all the vitamins and the minerals. So the body doesn't like eat, you eating the same thing lots and lots. And that's one of the reasons they put loads and loads of flavors in and so many different sensory things going on or Oreo sensory things and, and so on. Um, and, and again, I guess that's why the kids won't sit and just eat a whole plate of broccoli or, or sprouts because it's just one flavor and, and the brain switches off. Give me a bit more uh, around that, whether I've got that right or wrong. Yes, sensory satiety was uh, it's about 20, 30 years old now. And what that does is the brain, uh, the body needs about 50 to 60 different nutrients. And you're not going to get it by eating a bag of carrots unless you want to make your eyes yellow with beta carotene. So what you do is you burn out quickly on the same food. And this has been shown in neuroimaging studies. So that forces you to eat different things. Like on your plate, you don't eat all the beans first and all the all this first and all that first. You have a tendency to mix them up. And that way you mix up the nutrients. Remember, the body has to figure out survival. And the best way survival is, you know, I'm eating this orange and I just love it. Well, you eat oranges, by the way, all the time. You get sugar, you get vitamin C. Where's your protein? Uh, you're not going to survive very long. So your body uses a sensory specific satiety. Uh, that's to any sense, whether it's crunch, whether it's uh, color, whether it's flavor, whether it's taste. And it, it changes it. So it changes your diet and keeps you as healthy as possible. But in our society, that usually means different variety of junk food. Yeah, absolutely. Sadly, we're surrounded by it, aren't we? Um, so there's so many tricks, not tricks, but there's so many skills, let's say, that the big food companies can can, can throw at us. They know all this. They've got whole big departments. They know about putting salt, sugar, and fat together. They know about orosensory. They know about sliver and creating sliver. They're, they're, they're one up on us. They've got hundreds of people working for us to buy their food. And they're getting it right because I don't know if you use, use stones, don't you, as a, a measure in America. The average adult in our country, in Great Britain, is two and a half stone heavier than the year I'm, I'm, I was born in 66, that very famous year when we won the World Cup. Uh, but in the last 54 years, the average Brit has put on two and a half stone. And it's not all our fault. It seems to be that, that we've, we've just fallen for a lot of this food. What can we do about it? What we can do is there's a little something that I haven't seen in the literature or anybody's brought up, that if you want to get fatter, you have to eat carb, carbohydrates. The body stores fat on carbohydrates. That was one of my PhD thesis questions. So if you lower your carbohydrates, your body has a tendency not to store as much fat. Now the problem is all the fun foods are carbohydrates. So so what do you do? You what you have to do is you have to lower your carbohydrate as much as possible so you don't store the fat. 
That's the big key I've learned after 40 years of this. Lower your carbohydrate. Well, you know what I find fascinating about that? It was one thing you didn't say in that book, and that is our complete mission <laughs> in Great Britain. We think we've come to the same conclusion as you, is that the only way to regain your, your health uh, and to lower your weight, I was a beast for 25 years. That's why I'm fat and furious, or was fat and furious. It seems we've just got to stop eating as much potato, so much crisp, so much sugar, so much carbohydrate, so many things that turn into sugar inside the body and get back to a more natural uh, diet. Yeah, absolutely, that's the way to go. Uh, there was an article published about a year and a half ago in Science Magazine, and it's called uh, Processed Food Addiction. So processing food makes it more addictive because it, it, it reacts more quickly in the body. So when you mention natural, natural food has a tendency not to break down so quickly. And you can't get fat without carbohydrates. I did research with the keto diet. It, the keto diet makes no sense with all this fat, but with no carbohydrate, you can't get fat. And I proved it with the research that I, I did a, a couple of years ago. So you're saying that you can't get to the fat if you haven't got some carbs. Is that what you're saying? Or Yeah, what I'm saying is with, with your citric acid cycle, or TCA cycle in the body, you cannot put on fat calories unless you eat carbohydrate. The carbohydrate tells your body to store fat because storing fat is what humans do really well. But without the carbohydrates, the body goes, uh, I, don't have, I don't have sugar. I don't have glucose in the bloodstream, so it has to break down the fat. So it's absolutely the opposite. Eating bacon and, and, and butter for breakfast seems paradoxical, but your body won't store fat and it will kill your appetite. Now, dietitians, I'm a dietitian. I find this abhorrent. You probably shouldn't eat this way, but that's the way it works in physiology. Yeah, it just seems that we've got it so wrong for you know for such a long period of time. We've been feeding, well, I was feeding my children. I've got grown-up children and young children, and uh, I was feeding them Kellogg's for so, so long, and the apple juice and the orange juice and the toast, all things that I was doing for the right reasons, because even the Kellogg's said healthy messages on the front. Um, but the reality is all of those turned down in, into sugar inside of the body, and all of those end up getting stored as fat if they, you know, the children and myself, uh, you know, take on too much. Um, and you're right, you know, bacon, maybe, you know, maybe what we were eating before is, is the right way uh, to eat. Um, I want to go back to just a, one or two quick more things in the other, in the last book before we talk about your new one. Um, talk to us about the benefit of spices. Um, and in particular, you talked about why a lot of sort of Indian dishes used a lot of spices. Well, that, that's a good question about uh, spices. That, that's in my new book. I go into great detail. But spices have a tendency to be, uh, shall we say, psychoactive. For example, I just discovered in, in black pepper, if it's freshly ground black pepper, it has a spice in there that is a, a THC mim mimetic. So in other words, good ground black pepper can get you high. And also, remember what we said in dynamic contrast, the more sensation, the better. Indian cooking, which when I was in London, I spent a lot of time in the restaurants, is high in spice. 
And I, I asked a friend of mine who was an Indian doctor, why is Indian cooking so high in spice? And she goes, oh, uh, Dr. Ridley, that's because we're low in fat. I go, oh, she goes, fat is a luxury in India. So what we do is we make up for, for spice bacteria, but there is a psychoactive component to where I'm convinced to make you feel good. That's really, really, really interesting. So, uh, yeah, the, the Indian diet, you know, a lot of people, certainly in England, think that it's all meat-based because all our Indian takeaways in Britain are full of meat. But the reality is most of India doesn't have a lot of meat. It's mainly vegetables, therefore low in calorie density. And there you, therefore you mask that by adding the spices. Is, is, is that also what you're kind of saying? Exactly. That's what you do. What you're doing is you're fooling your brain into having more calories with more spices than not. Now, remember, something that's calorie-dense like ice cream has vanilla ice cream. It's the number one selling brand in the world. It's just vanilla because its caloric density is five, and it has perfect uh, amount of salt, sugar, and fat. So you don't need spice unless you want to add green tea or something. But if you got something low in calories, spice it up. That's great, great advice. Thank you very much indeed. So let's go back to uh, in the first book, your, your very first food. Because for those that don't know, by the way, this is just an amazing, amazing, amazing book. Uh, it's available here in the UK uh, via Amazon.com. Uh, uh, and what Dr. Stephen does brilliantly is he gives you all the insight at the beginning about all these different things that happen inside the mouth and explains about orosensory, uh, about saliva, about uh, et cetera, et cetera. But then goes down one by one and tells you why you like cookies, why you like ice cream, why you like bread, why you like chips, why you like fries. But you were saying at the, at the beginning, Stephen, the very first one you ever analyzed that got you into this was looking at, 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 uh, at tacos, uh, or crisps as we call them in the UK. Uh, how do they get us so addicted to those things? If you look at the ingredient list of Doritos, and it's one of my favorite foods, I have to admit, there's uh, seven, at least 17 to 18 ingredients, and as I detail in the next book, uh, 15 of them are taste potentiators. 15. Wow. So what happens is everything you can think of to make something taste good is in the Doritos. But there's a key point here, a key point. That Doritos flavor, you're not quite sure what it is. So the brain wants to use sensory specific satiety to stop eating, but the brain can't figure out what is it cumin? Is it black pepper? Is it white pepper? Is it cheese? What is it? Because the brain can't figure it out, you can keep eating the whole bag. Right. And of course they've not done that by accident, have they? I mean that, that that's <laughs> by design, surely. The uh, Doritos means little bits of gold. And I think uh, you can figure after eight billion uh, a year, they figured it out. Now I just want to mention there are some aromas that you never get bored with, and those are aromas like uh, in popcorn, vanilla. You never get bored with, so you can use those flavors as well. Your brain never gets sensory specific satiety to vanilla. It's not going to happen. Well, I've never thought about that before, but actually, because um, one of my still things, even though I try and live primarily today and avoid sugar, if I do have a treat, occasionally, probably once a month, it's ice cream. And I, and, I, and, I, and I can certainly remember back when I used to really sort of eat loads of ice cream, 
that actually the vanilla was the one I never got, even though the chocolate had more flavor and even though the strawberry had more flavor. And at first I thought I enjoyed it more. I would always finish the big tub of vanilla before I'd even got halfway through the, the other two tubs. Well, that, that's, <laughs> that's precisely correct. So I asked a PhD friend of mine, why are, are humans so uh, enamored with vanilla? And, and she says, oh, that's easy. The, the flavor of breast milk is vanilla. So we had to. We had to get over uh, the fact of having the same thing over and over and again, uh, which uh, the SSS factor, we had to get over it to get over breast milk. Exactly. So if, if vanilla is, is something that tells the brain never get bored, never turn off. Now, I use this in, in a subtle way in my cooking, for example, and all, all the dishes that I make that are desserts, I always add a vanilla note to the background. This is a key point that I mentioned in the book that I've seen people using more and more. Vanilla will turn off a sensory specific satiety. It's a built-in mechanism, and it's also found in French fries. <clears throat> in French fries? Really? Absolutely. <laughs> so the French fries isn't just evil oil that they're cooking it in and, and then potatoes, that they're adding things to that as well. What are they doing, adding it in the oil or? It, the French fry <clears throat> is it transformed by cooking at a high temperature about 365. And, and it's usually cooked twice. But the pyrazines that come off the French fry don't seem to turn off liking, unfortunately. So a few things don't turn off liking. One is popcorn, one is French fries, one is vanilla ice cream, one is milk. It does not seem to turn off liking in the brain. And that's, uh, of course, put to good use in the, in the fast food industry, I'm sorry to say. And, and of course, a lot of the vanilla today is synthetic anyway, isn't it? Because real vanilla is quite expensive. So they've just managed to sort of uh, synthesize vanilla, uh, I guess, en masse, and then putting it in anything that they think that, that they want us to eat in more volume. You're 100% correct. What I used to use, and I probably shouldn't tell you, but I used to use ethyl vanillin, which is about 10 bucks a kilo. So it's really cheap. But once we discovered that phenomena, we used it in all sorts of products that we came out with. It's a, it's a little trick that you could use at home as well. Put a little vanilla in even savory type of dishes, and it, the, the flavor of salt comes through even better. Fascinating. In fact, talking of, of savory dishes, um, what tell us about uh, MSG uh, and... Because savory, there was originally wasn't there like the four tastes? What was it? Sweetness, sourness, saltiness, and I can't remember the other one. Uh, uh, and then they found out about savory. There's a word I can't remember now beginning with W, wamami. Tell me about wamami and, uh, and savories and, and how the, you know, all the Chinese food putting MSG in and potentially what you know, that might do to our bodies. Well, I can tell you a lot about this because I did research on this when I was at UC Davis. A umami is the name of the, of the taste that's called savoriness. It comes from Japanese. The, the Jap, Japan invented MSG, not the Chinese. Uh, MSG was expensive, and so the, the Chinese were not actually loading their stuff up with MSG. Uh, it, was, it was more of a Japanese phenomenon. But it's been found in the mouth that there is a, a, as you add three ingredients, 
It causes the greatest pleasure signal. It's salt. It's called five prime nucleotide, and it's called MSG. You put those three together in the right ratio, and your brain absolutely lights up. I couldn't believe it when I saw the research and did some of it myself. MSG by itself tastes awful, but you add the five prime nucleotides and you add the salt, and you get a flavor that is so addicting, it's unbelievable. And you can find those in most snack foods. And uh, Japanese have taken it even to a step further. Uh, the, 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 the snack food market in Japan is even more advanced than what can we imagine. So I looked at what they have. So umami is, is, is a savory taste. And this is why we have it. It tells us we're eating protein. Wow. So when you're eating, we're eating a Cheerio, your brain thinks you're eating a 10-ounce ribeye steak. Huh. And, 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 and I guess they want to do that for the brain because protein out of everything is probably the most expensive to put into packaged food. So if by putting that combination together, they can tell our brain we're eating protein, it's telling the brain it's doing good for its development, I guess. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And when you think about it, it's pretty despicable, but that's the way food science is. That, that people have to you know, sell product, but they found that by accident. I did research on it. It is so obviously tastier that it will take your breath away. I've done it with students over the years. That competition was also uh, invented by the uh, Koreans. The Koreans figured this out, did research on it. If there's one thing you can do to your food to make it uh, gourmet-like, is add the big three to it, natural or synthetic. You can do it naturally with mushrooms, but if you want to be a gourmet chef, you need those big three in your food. You put that in your stew, and it's an unbelievable reaction that people have. They'll eat it all. Is it healthy or is it unhealthy? Question is, is MSG and this combination unhealthy, or is it just the fact that it's always associated with unhealthy foods? Well, I can answer that question. It's real simple. Uh, when, when I was working with the Inflaformal Division uh, with, a, with a, a large company, we had to put in the five prime nucleotides for growth of infants. And your body, is, your body protein is 17% glutamate. So you're a walking, talking MSG, and you need a, a, you need a five prime nucleotide for your immune system. So your body knows what it needs, even though it sounds awful. Yeah, but again, I'm still not quite clear. Are we saying that if we add that to our food, it's not harmful? It's just that it gets added to fast foods to trick the brain that the rest of the meal is okay. That's correct. It's not harmful to add it to food. As a matter of fact, the body could use some of it. Uh, MSG is converted to uh, uh, other compounds that your body can use for uh, for the inner sites in, in the gut. So it's not. It's not bad for you at all. Like I said, the, the five prime nucleotides are fine, salt's fine, but it does trick your brain into thinking of something more nutritious than it is. Right. That's why we get it in our fast foods. Uh, thank you for that indeed. Um, so um, you mentioned that maybe to help your country and our country regain our health, strip back some of the weight, which I think is probably the number one thing we can do to you know, uh, put more years into our into our life and, and for uh, a better aging, uh, strip back the carbohydrates. Um, 
But how do we switch the brain off from all of this fast food with all their brilliant departments for adding in different stuff? I tell you what I heard the other day. Uh, it was on 60 Minutes CBS. It was a recording. They said that you have to be even careful where they say natural flavoring. And they gave an example how a natural flavoring of strawberries they found could actually come from the gland of a, beaver, a beaver's bottom. I mean, don't ask me how they found that out, but there are companies that are so good at mimicking flavors now and so good at tricking us by saying it's natural flavors, natural strawberry flavor. Well, it's strawberry flavor and it is natural, but it's from a beaver's bottom. I mean, how is our brain going to compete against this? Well, the, the problem is <laughs> once we've learned all these tricks of eating, our brain and our eyes and our nose and our tongue know what we're up against. The problem is, uh, I've looked at this as well, being a dietitian and nutritionist, and the only solution I have is learn how to cook with more flavors, more colors, more spices, reduce the carbohydrate as much as you possibly can, but do it slowly, don't do it all at once. It's been found that carbohydrates increase serotonin in the brain. Serotonin in the brain is increased by antidepressants, so going sugar-free, it'll probably make you depressed for a couple of weeks. Just cut back a little bit, but increase the amount of flavor, crunch, sensation, and that's part of the way of getting back to normal. Great advice. Thank you very, very much. And, and tell us a little bit about your new book when you think you're going to launch it. Uh, what, have you, you know, what have you learned since you wrote this brilliant book some 10 years ago? Well, what, what we've learned is that the... the <laughs> The brain doesn't trust you. Once you've learned to eat junk food and lots of sugar, the brain bypasses your, your cerebrum entirely. What it does is it goes underneath your higher order brain and it works through your brain stem to eat all sugar-laden foods. So your brain, once you learn to eat sugar and junk food, it will never forget. So you need to try to stay away from it as much as possible and don't have it in your house. Keep it away. You're not your own when it's area. Your body likes these things. It will always seek after it for the rest of your life. Yeah, so that's why we've got to be careful with our children. But what about, there must be some hope for people that are maybe middle-aged and they're, they're four or five stone overweight. There must be some hope. There must be some way we can, re is there, is, there must be some way, is there, that we can reprogram the brain or... Or is it, as you've just said, slowly by slowly, less junk food in the house, slowly moving away from the carbs to, to your healthy cooking, more vegetables, more meats, and so on. Is that, is that the process? Yeah, the, the process <clears throat> is try to eat carbohydrates that are slow-release carbohydrates. It's been shown in, my, in the next book, which is, which is uh, unfortunate, that the faster the food releases sugar in the body, the more you're addicted. So you need to eat food that break down more slowly. For example, if you have a glass of orange juice, it's pretty addicting because there's no fiber in it. You add fiber to the orange juice, suddenly your body goes, wait, this is more like uh, natural food. So you want to eat it with the fiber in it. You want to eat food with the protein in it. Do not ever eat bread before dinner. Yeah. Do not do that. That will spike a 30% increase in intake. So it's little things like increasing protein, increasing fiber intake, 
and having slow-release sugars, that combination works the best. Isn't that fascinating that when restaurants give you the free bread, you think it, you're thinking to yourself, that's really silly of them. A, it's cost them money to give me free bread. And B, by eating that bread, I probably won't eat as much. But what, what I read in your book is actually the opposite. You're, <laughs> you're once again correct. What you do is you order dessert. Yeah. <laughs> and why is that? Is that because when you have the bread to start off with at the beginning, does that, that quick sugar rush and then the insulin grabs it and puts it away, it actually leaves you more hungry than when you walked into the restaurant? That's correct. As insulin is going up, you feel less hungry. As insulin is going down, you feel very hungry. So that happens in about an hour. Uh, at just about dessert time. <laughs> Fascinating. So just as we thought all those restaurants were doing us a huge favor, it's actually completely the, 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 the opposite. And uh, um, before we leave you today, first of all, thank you for coming on. It's been absolutely fascinating. I just want to make sure that we haven't missed anything. We've talked about emulsion, uh, dynamic contrast. We've talked about the, the mixing of the salt, calorie density. We've talked about that, which is fantastic. Uh, sensory specific satiety, we talked about that. Oh, I'll tell you what we've not talked about. Talk to me about the exposure effect, um, because I think we can use this to, to good as well as, uh, uh, you know, obviously food companies do that to encourage us to, to eat more of the bad stuff. But tell me a bit more about the exposure effect and how that may even eventually get us our, our kids liking the carrots and the broccoli. Well, if we're talking about fat, fat is complicated because it depends on the chain length of the fat. The longer the chain length, that changes the physiology of the fat itself. And it's recently been discovered that your tongue has fat receptors. I gave a presentation once and I was made fun of because I said there was a fat taste. Well, now there is a fat taste. And why? Because your body has two essential fatty acids that you need to, to survive. So of course you have a fat taste. But the texture in the mouth and the mouthfeel, the, the brain loves smooth things. And remember that the tongue can detect 10 microns across. Now, that means really, really smooth chocolate is bad. That's why European chocolate is so much better than American chocolate, because it's much smoother. Wow. So that's the, the actual size of the, the taste area is really, really small. Uh, did I just hear that right? Is that what you're saying? It, it's astounding how uh, your tongue could, could detect it. But we did research where some people could, could even detect five microns in size. So uh, if you want something that's gritty, get an American Hershey bar. If you want something that's really good chocolate, get a Lint bar or a Calibo. But we found there was a big difference in between the grain size due to the way it's processed. And that, I guess that also explains why things that make that, that have moisture in the mouth, uh, mm. you know, you need moisture to, to, I guess anything that's like liquid inside the mouth touches more taste buds and therefore delivers more of that flavor uh, to, 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 you know, to the body. Is that right? Exactly. The, 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 the smaller the particle, the quicker the taste. And remember that the quicker the taste in the mouth, the more pleasure. If you have to wait for 10 minutes, you're not going to be eating the food. So quick pleasure is what the mouth is all about. That's how we combat the big food companies and how we, we start to think about changing our cooking 
at home. We've got to think about orosensory. We've got to think about saliva in the mouth. We've got to think about different textures from hot to cold by crunchy by, uh, I guess it's what, is that also why, uh, I'm sure you have them in America, probably invented in America. Is that why the M&Ms are so lovely? They might have the nut on the outside, but they've got that crunchy chocolate around the outside. Well, I did. <laughs> I didn't talk about the M&M, but they have a sugar coating on the outside, which causes immediate hedonics. And then the sugar, which is actually, and then the uh, 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 chocolate on the inside, which is actually pretty good chocolate. You get that smoothness. So you get the contrast of the hard and the soft. But you have to remember, it took a number of years for M&Ms to catch on. <laughs> Absolutely true, indeed. Um, I'm just going to flick through. We talked about why we like ice cream. We talked about chip uh, chips. Um, on the positive side, garlic, we know, is healthy for us. Um, and, and it is healthy, but in the book, you also say that it delivers a lot of pleasure in the mouth. So maybe put more garlic in, in your cooking. Well, how does that work? Uh, I, I got the idea from the uh, cook, Emeril, who used to add 40 cloves of garlic to everything he cooked. And then I found out, unbelievably, that garlic affects the receptor in the mouth for salt taste and sugar taste. In other words, garlic is a taste potentiator of a supreme. So then I realized that almost every junk food adds garlic powder and onion powder. And that the garlic affects something called a calcium hedonic receptor. So garlic in any food perks it up. So you, you cut on a, a little tip here, and a little garlic can't hurt anything except maybe ice cream. <laughs> Thank you. That's great, great, great. And uh, what about the, the the hamburgers that you seem to have exported to the rest of the world? We we can't move a mile in the UK without seeing a, a McDonald's or a Burger King. Or... Why why do we love, why do we love our burgers so much? Well, the the, the hamburger has lots of uh, lots of uh, sensation. You've got you got the burger, the bun, the ketchup, the pickle, the mayonnaise, the mustard. Tremendous. But the most important thing is this. A professor at San Diego State told me, if you were on an island and you had to survive, what's the one food you would eat? It's a hamburger. Wow. Your, your survival, you could last forever on a hamburger, and your brain knows that. <laughs> Fascinating. And, of course, we like chocolate for all the reasons you mentioned earlier, but the good news, of course, uh, is we could change that chocolate out for, say, a, a higher cocoa uh, percentage and, and therefore get a lot of those pleasures through through chocolate. So I know chocolate was uh, one of your big chapters that you wrote about. Yeah, we're uh, looking at chocolate differently these days. In the old days, chocolate had fat. Uh, when I was working with a company a long time ago, I discovered that chocolate has fewer calories than it seems. So I petitioned the FDA that, you know what, chocolate only has 25% less calories. And they, they told me, because you don't absorb steric acid, and they told me quite politely to stuff it, they're going to keep the calorie content of chocolate. But chocolate itself has about eight compounds that are, let's say, psychoactive. And I talk about that in my next book. Well, we're really looking forward to, to it. Um, when do you think it's going to get published, Stephen? Uh, we think it'll be published by next year, maybe in springtime. But... Uh, the book you have now is a good place to start, but we'll have all the answers by next spring. Fantastic. Well, we really, really look forward to it. Uh, I think you're an absolute pioneer in this area. You, you've taken on some real challenges and, and, and sort, of, sort of 
put out what's really going on in the food industry. So, so thank you from the bottom of my heart and from everyone that's going to watch this podcast. And uh, maybe we can catch up with you again uh, just before you launch your book. It sounds great. And you remember, I, I tell dietitians, use the book for good, not for evil. Now you know it's evil. Go out there and make a difference. Yeah, will do indeed. Thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go, though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fats and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FF Podcast, and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.